Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Noise, the podcast series from PR Week. I'm Frankie Oliver, your host and founder of New Society, and today I am joined by UK editor John Harrington. Hi, Frankie. And our special guest, Jack Lundy, Director of Campaigns at WWF and Professor Rupert Reid from the University of East Anglia, who helped launch XR and is the founder of a new moderate flank incubator, which we'll come on to explain later. Hello to you both. Hi. Hey. So today we are here to discuss our hopes and expectations for COP27, which has started this week, and why climate communications and its messages are clearly, in many cases, not cutting through to the public, a topic I talked about last year at COP26. So first you, Rupert, I'm sure you have many hopes and expectations for COP27, but, but where are you? How are you feeling about COP and what are you really hoping it's going to achieve? Do I have many hopes and expectations for COP27? The honest answer is no, uh, and I'll explain that answer. So ever since Copenhagen in 2009, which was a disaster and also a PR disaster, the COPs have worked pretty hard to make sure that they always look good. In 2015, of course, at Paris, they really did have something to celebrate with the amazing diplomatic achievement of the Paris Agreement. But since then, it's been fairly thin gruel, uh, and that was very much the case at Glasgow, where you and I were last year, Frankie. But nevertheless, a lot of PR effort went into trying to persuade people that Glasgow had been successful, although it had basically come up with almost nothing concrete apart from a promise to get countries to promise more regularly to report on what emissions cuts they were going to make, a promise, by the way, which very few have delivered on. So we come to the COP this year, It's been 26 years of this and only one or two moments of real success. I think that this COP this year will achieve very little indeed. It's got loss and damage, the issue which the Global South really cared about, onto the agenda. That's something, but I wouldn't expect much more. What we actually need out of this COP 
is disclosure, is some kind of genuine, honest facing of the public with the reality around how inadequate the COP process is and about how catastrophic, frankly, the uh, climate situation is looking. But we are incredibly unlikely to get that. So all we can do really is uh, try to contribute that from the outside, as it were, try to make sure that, well, to put it bluntly, the citizens of the world are not fooled again. Uh, because every year that we get fooled uh, and people think that perhaps uh, another cop is going to save them uh, is one more year of response time that we don't have. Jack? Um, yeah, I, I can I can see a lot a lot of sense in, in what Rupert has said. As, as an organisation, you know, we do have hopes and, and a range of different advocacy ambitions, but I, I, I think there's no getting away from the the, the fact that um, we're not short of fine words and uh, admirable promises. I think um, the, the challenge is uh, about delivery and accountability, and that's what um, we've been uh, campaigning certainly around uh, Glasgow, actually at the. Um, at the 20, during the 2015 COP, I was director of comms at Oxfam, so uh, with a slightly different uh, perspective uh, around development and the impacts of climate change um, on um, uh, poorer communities around the world, etc. But I, I think um, just looking at it from you know last year in Glasgow, there there were good promises. Um, uh, whether or not that is about fooling people, I I guess it is certainly. Um, uh, very challenging when the the commitment is not there. So you know the delivery of these promises is kicked down the road, or they're inadequately resourced, funded, so that we don't actually make the necessary progress. And and it's been a, a fairly sorry progress report since Glasgow um, that coming into this year. So uh, though you know we do have hopes and an advocacy program that we'd like to see commitments on a range of things. Uh, you know. At, as you said, from loss and damage, transformation of the food system, adaptation, all of that uh, kind of thing. I think that the problem is accountability. And that's why I think, uh, and I'm particularly interested in this conversation about the, the role that the public can have, because I think the public likewise are, have probably reached a stage of, of really deep fatigue in terms of hearing, hearing all the words and, and, and still... Uh, and then every report that comes out is a darker shade of red. You know, it, it's you know we, we've we've had the red alert, we've had dark red alert, we've had really really dark red alert. It's not getting better. We're heading in the wrong direction, um, and and so we we need to explore new ways to bring, well, to release the power of the uh, of, of the public and uh, and people in terms of driving accountability. And I think that's that's a really difficult deficit to address. And I think with that. I think very much for COP26, it was positioned as our last best hope, wasn't it? And actually all the research shows with the public that they um, largely trusted that governments were now getting on with it on the back of COP26. Oh, there was that big event in Glasgow and it feels that something is now being done. The public largely didn't understand that even that COP was delivering a 2.4 outcome um, and that actually we still were far off the kind of 1.5 target. It's interesting to think about the role of COPs moving forward because I feel like there's now a position for those COPs where they are holding accountability. And the fact that there is now a focus on COP27, which is really addressing how far off we are. And that for me feels an important role, even if they're not necessarily managing to um, have any sort of legal and binding control over whether those countries are actually delivering, they're at least the school report, as it were, on where we actually are. Do you think that is at least helpful, Rupert? 
Yeah, I, I think the best thing that the COP system does for us these days is it gives us an annual opportunity to give real scrutiny and to get a load of media attention on climate. Now, that's not very good when you consider what we actually need, which is worldwide transformation, massive emission reductions, huge financial shifts and green tech gifts and so on and so forth. But it's better than a slap in the face with a wet fish. So we've got to take maximum advantage of it. And this year, one interesting aspect of the situation, of course, is that the 1.5 degree maximum for safe global overheat levels, you know, relatively safe, safe in inverted commas, um, is under scrutiny as never before, with a number of us having been saying for some time now that it's, there's no practical pathway to stay below 1.5. Uh, our ranks were received the surprising addition the other day of The Economist uh, magazine saying that 1.5 is dead. And maybe, just maybe, we're getting to the point now where it's possible to reach that point of honesty, which we desperately need uh, in all of this. You know, the really revolutionary thing from a PR point of view, uh, it's been quite clear what it is for the last few years. It's simply to tell the truth. And the truth is that we are tragically not going to stay below 1.5 degrees. It's absolutely implausible. It's geophysically possible, of course, but it's in no way politically uh, conceivable with the absolute best will uh, in the world. And when we start to face that, then a kind of reckoning becomes possible, a reckoning which has been put off by these years of kind of PR Pollyannaism, uh, and which, uh, when it comes, and I think it's now starting to come, um, could be revolutionary. Uh, because it means that the public will finally be in a position where they're no longer able to safely outsource this issue to governments. And and do you think that awakening is happening really this week with the reports of you know how much we're missing 1.5 that maybe the public are waking up to the fact that the governments aren't delivering against their promises? Well, I think it's going to take a while because what I'm hearing from COP27 is still most people mouthing the platitudes around 1.5 uh, and uh, radical NGOs saying we must stay below uh, 1.5 because otherwise the, the consequences will be really, really disastrous. And they're right, the consequences uh, are going to be really, really disastrous, but they are going to be the consequences that we are going to uh, experience. Uh, I think it's going to be it's going to be a very painful process. I think it's probably going to take uh, about another uh, year, maybe even a year and a half. But I think by the time COP28 comes around, uh, the idea of staying below 1.5 will be looking so threadbare it will be it will be virtually impossible for anyone to defend it uh, with a straight face. And that is going to be, as I say, as that realization starts to sink in. That will be a huge moment of reckoning. Picking up on this on this issue of communications, though, um, I mean, why do you think climate communication messages aren't really cutting through to the public in many ways? I mean, you talk about things like um, 1.5, 2.4. I'm not entirely sure I know what, what that means exactly. I'm, I'm not a, a climate expert, but do you think there are real problems there? And, and, and why do you think those are? Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right, of course. Uh, we have to, as it were, translate 
um, these things. Uh, I've got a, a little film just out which tries to do that in a very direct way. It's called uh, Out of the Ashes. Uh, and more generally, I think there is an enormously important role here for um, for broadcasts, for the arts, for entertainment, um, to enable people to imagine and picture different possible futures and see possible agency uh, between those futures. It's absolutely critical, and this is something that I've been trying to do with colleagues for the last three years now, to really develop in people a, a concrete understanding of the vulnerabilities that we're moving into and the way that those uh, grow and grow. Jack? Your views? Yeah, I, I, I think that's that's exactly right in terms of um, it's you can spend a lot of time trying to explain uh, and raise kind of public awareness or understanding of what the difference between one point five and two uh, is, and um, you know we've we've taken the trouble to, to to engage people with the outcomes in terms of nature. So you know one point five means we lose seventy percent of the world's coral. Two degrees means we lose it all, uh, bringing it to life. But but ultimately, I think uh, well, really interesting to hear Rupert kind of shifting away from you know compensating for the lack of lack of trust or faith in politicians or global political platforms uh, like like COP into um, engaging people where they are, where they live, and empowering them with both uh, a vision of what is possible, um, increasing their agency, and and so that people can understand they that little contributions can make a difference and add up to uh, dramatic change. And then finding new new ways for people to organize uh, locally and in their communities to um, to kind of drive change. I, I think that's where, you know, the communication for, for us, you know, communica- the, uh, the, the climate crisis and uh, the collapse of nature are two sides of the same coin. And I think, um, so bringing the impacts of climate change to life by their impacts on nature, but also positioning nature as an opportunity for people uh, in caring about nature, bringing nature back into our lives and redefining our relationship with it is actually a, a really powerful route to respond to what is a, a big, terrifying and slightly abstract concept in terms of global warming. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that's where um, communicators and campaigners like, like me are most interested in those communications which in, in engage people emotionally uh, so that people understand the outcomes but then invest in people's uh, agency and um, and give them that power and and, and hope I guess I, and, and I think that's a very interesting balance to be struck there between w- what Rupert describes as um, uh, you know the, the, the need for truth uh, particularly around 1.5 and and how terrifying and debilitating that can be for some audiences and balancing that with, um, okay, so look, there is some change that is inevitable. We are going to have to change the way we live. But if we do some big, powerful things and get together and work at a local or community level, it can add up to pressure on uh, politicians and and uh, business businesses too and can add up, can add up to um, significant change. Yeah. Can I just add to that? But um, I think that Jack's absolutely right, that truth by itself is no use. What you need is truth in context and truth in concert with mutual support, with a sense that you're not alone, with invitations to action and agency, effective ways in which people get inv- can get involved in something meaningful at a level that they can understand. And with making sense of the whole situation, with a with a sense-making process that enables people to see that something 
good is starting to happen, that they're part of something much bigger, which is moving in the kind of direction which if we all went in that direction, could actually start to turn the situation around. And then I think it's also worth looking back a bit, though, still about why we are where we are. And I think, you know, WWF, absolutely, they've done a great job in terms of trying to break down exactly what it is that happens from a nature perspective at, at the different degrees. I do think, however, there's still quite a big gap in really explaining what this now means. So, for example, you know, I think it's easy for people to understand, you know, when we don't have any coral reef, that's a really emotional subject isn't it and people can sort of emotionally connect with what that means but it doesn't then yet explain what does this mean for our fish stocks what does this then mean for our biodiversity what does it mean when the uh, Greenland ice sheet collapses at 1.8 you know when that melts so what happens next what happens next when we hit two degrees and we're at drought levels what does that mean for our food system so in a way, like last night, I was, you know, overjoyed to see the BBC um, and Hugh Edwards kind of really doing a bit of a Jon Snow, actually, I would say, in terms of like, here we are at 1.5 and this is where we're going to hit at 2.8 and trying to explain um, the sort of the shades of grey between those two numbers, really. But what it still didn't do was to really explain what this meant for people. And I think it's that abstract nature of what this really means that is possibly making the public really get their arms around this and really understand what it means for them their children the cost of living crisis their homes that that you know we've sort of got the highway to hell from antonio guterres and we've got 1.5 to 2.8 on the news and that narrative that helps people to really understand what this means to them is arguably missing I think that's right, Frankie. That's the huge communications challenge, arguably, of our time, is to enable ordinary citizens, the planet round, to understand that in a way that they can concretely see and imagine that makes sense to them in terms of their lives and their values, and that they can understand themselves in relation to it as having some kind of power and responsibility along with other people. You know, as long as everyone thinks of themselves as an individual, isolated, of course, we're all going to feel weak and powerless. So it, this all has to be about kind of collective imagination and collective uh, agency. But yeah, if we could do what you describe there, that, that's what we absolutely have to do, is to enable people to see themselves in that and to, and to understand what these different possible futures will actually look like and feel like and sound like. So whose job is that, Jack? Is it the WWF job? Is it the UN job? I'm just because this is the hard thing about climate, isn't it? That when you're normally running your own communication strategy, you're in charge of your three core messages. You deliver consistency with your spokespeople. We, we've got a huge number of spokespeople, a huge number of messages. And actually that confusion and lack of consistency can be quite difficult, can't it? And is, is this a job that the UN needs to potentially try and solve? Just thinking and messaging a communications term might, might be not, not quite enough. And I know it's a bit of a hackneyed word, but I think engagement is, is closer to the idea that Rupert, um, uh, you were talking about just, just a minute ago in, in terms of you give people information and, 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 uh, 
and whether or not you know you deliver the impact or the threat of what could be lost or what people's children could experience and the planet that's left after you go and all of that. That then there's the the agency and then there are routes to change. Um, so you have to engage people. It's it's more than just landing the message and the communication because I think you know we're we're a science based organisation. We can provide that and we can translate the science into accessible language, but it still won't necessarily or hasn't necessarily led to enough public act activism and demand for systemic change that the world requires and so and so you, you i think i guess we're looking for different models of change we're d different uh, message carriers as well i think you know um uh, unexpected partners or voices talking about um this stuff in in whatever channel um is 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 helpful um and brings brings people forward to uh, the more expected people who trot this stuff out the media obviously have a critical role to play in this, and the media is very, very broad church from public service, service uh, like the BBC. I'm ex-BBC, so I obviously think they do a wonderful job, um, uh, except when they um, platform. Now, I'm not going to go there, um, but but they I know, do. We'd love uh, to go there. <laughs> I'm sure you would. I'm, I'm sure you would. I, I was, you know, I was at the BBC in 2008 when um, involved in pitching ideas around doing um, planet relief. Uh, as a new spin on comic. And the BBC hadn't yet arrived at an editorial position where it was unequivocally supportable because it was still, they, there was still the balance requirement, which thankfully they've moved on uh, a long time ago. And they're, they're doing amazingly powerful uh, stuff around climate change and, and promoting cops. Because frankly, I don't think most people in the UK really know what cop, cops are. <laughs> so, because they don't, but, but platforms like the BBC playing an admirable role, I, I think it's not helpful when other media outlets um, confuse uh, the public by capitalizing on the cost of living crisis, for instance, and therefore, and creating a false choice between, for instance, green or growth, which is not nonsense, as far as I can tell, you know, so the media are extremely uh, influential and, and uh, working with, with media partners to try and get, um, uh, I don't know if, if truth is the right word, but more, more factually based reporting it is helpful. I, I guess most broadcasters don't see themselves as actually activating people uh, so much, but occasionally they do good campaigns. I think that's such a good point because I think the big gap really here that you're talking about is engagement and education. And we know that um, governments are supposed to have de delivered against Article 12 of the Paris Treaty, and it was also part of Rio and the Glasgow Pact, that we need public education and engagement strategies. And we know that when the public are educated, they hold the government to account and they're also much more likely to act in their own lives. But at the moment, we've got very few countries who are stepping up on public engagement. And we've also got, you know, very limited, you know, um, action from other institutions, for example, broadcasters stepping into that role where, you know, they're not quite there. They're about making TV shows and, and really understanding how they systemically can address that problem is possibly the big gap. Rupert. Yeah, just a further quick point on that, Frankie, which is that, in my view, the hugest open goal here, the thing, the opportunity which really hasn't been taken, uh, and which I'm trying in my small way to redress, working directly with artists and filmmakers and so forth, is fictional presentations of this, especially on TV. There's been literally virtually nothing. Uh, you had some, a show like Years and Years, for example, which tried to look at where we may be going politically over the next decade or so, and migration-ish concerns going to an extreme level and so forth. But 
even that didn't really touch on the climate impacts which are going to be hitting us. It's it's such a abdication of responsibility that uh, that broadcasters uh, on TV especially um, have completely failed to offer any kind of dramatic fictionalization of our situation and of the, the coming years. And I, I really hope that that will be remedied as part of what you and I and Jack have just been talking about. Jack, do you agree that we need the fictionalized future versus maybe the current future? And, you know, you've obviously been a broadcaster. What, what's your view on television's ability to engage with that you know what i think i think rupert's so a couple of things rupert's exactly right and, and particularly you know looking at it genre by genre is actually helpful because drama is actually what people tune into the weekly soaps you know reach massive audiences and people really care about them and there was some exciting stuff in the build-up to cop actually last year i think across channels um there was the, the idea to put extreme weather in a range of different dramas just to get that subliminal messaging out I, I and i i think drama is extremely powerful i i did and then you know factual there, there are lots of documentaries really good ones um but a, a documentary hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The titled climate change is going to bring people who are interested in climate change it won't necessarily reach people who are just interested in stories and other people um and in terms of drama i think its power is normalizing the idea of or familiarizing and normalizing action for instance or caring about the environment and the climate so i think it has a, a huge role i was lucky enough to be deputy editor of blue peter and in 2007 i think we did green peter wow what a claim to fame yeah. um <laughs> yes i'm very proud of that and we did a green peter which fictionalized the presenters uh, in cartoon form returning to Earth in the year 2050 for it to be on, on fire, which was quite a bold thing to do for an audience of nine-year-olds. Uh, but then intercut it with kind of filmed documentary, kind of factual inserts of uh, things that, that can be done to protect nature and the climate. So uh, not leaving children thinking, oh my God, we're going to, uh, we're all going to burn, but, but just um, you know, connecting connecting children with you know a sense of their place in the world and the reality of what it means to be in the world, and also empowering them with the idea that they can take action um, to change that world that they're growing growing up in. So um, yes, I, you know the broadcasters, and I think outside of news is is key. So in in factual, in drama, in entertainment, and and I think actually the other thing I wanted to say to Rupert is that there are broadcaster and production company based initiatives looking at how to integrate 
uh, all of the, these ideas into scripts, into running orders, into program propositions, so that uh, audiences, as I said, that they might get the information or the messaging, but they might also suddenly get the emotional connection, the uh, bringing to life the threat, uh, and, and hopefully some sense of agency. Yeah, excellent. And I guess the other part of what you've just been saying there, Jack, which I think is so, such a crucial dimension here, is the children uh, themselves. The other huge comms challenge, I think, which I've tried to address in some of my uh, written work in recent years, such as my book, Parents for a Future, uh, is really placing front and center the importance of our children, of our grandchildren, of their lives, their futures being on the line here. How do we get, uh, well, PR would be one way of putting it. How do we get PR to to be uh, a force for uh, the next generation, the next generations? Where's the PR agency, which is standing up for uh, the children who are going to face the full brunt of uh, what is almost certainly coming? Well, it's interesting to also think about the strategies that have got us to where we are, because I think there has been quite a big issue in broadcasting and also the way that businesses have engaged their employees and also what's led a lot of comms campaigns up until now, which is the focus on the individual and the carbon footprint, as opposed to the focus on the citizen and their ability to use their voices and, and empower action in their communities, on their social networks, with their, with their workplace. And, you know, that focus on the individual carbon footprint and also just gently nudging people in the right direction has arguably not been transformative enough for the great scale of the problem that we're facing and the social learning journey that we need to take the public on to then empower them to actually be able to act. Yeah. Do you agree? uh, Absolutely, 100%. And that's why I said before, we have to take a fundamentally collective attitude towards this. So it's really about us parenting the future together. But I think a key way in that a lot of ordinary people can find approachable to this is thinking, what's genuinely in the best interests of my children and of their children and of their children and of this iterating down, hopefully, into a long-term uh, human future? And of course, what's genuinely in the best interests of our children and our children's children? Uh, and you can't defend that as an individual or even as a family. Uh, you have to look at it on uh, well, at minimum, a sort of society-wide level and ultimately a global level. But of course, a lot of what we do to uh, effectively um, act globally is to uh, act locally. Uh, so again, that's why I think it comes back to how do we make our local communities, how do we make the places that we work, etc. how do we make those fit for purpose for the 21st century and fit for purpose for our grandchildren? Oh, I think that's such an interesting, you know, the idea of, of it, it's not particularly new, but the idea of, you know, local action, global impact is absolutely key. I, I think, you know, we're going to, um, as, as you know, Frankie, we've got plans next year for, to engage, you know, the, the UK public on the state of UK nature. Um, and I think um, people will be shocked to, to know that we're in the bottom 10% of the, the nation's chart on what's called biodiversity intactness. Basically, we're, we're, we're a, a broken state when it comes to nature. Um, and if, if we're, uh, we have to reverse that and if we're, and that will be part of bringing the whole world back to life as it were, but that, you know, if, if we repair our nature, that will have, uh, that situate, situates us in what has previously felt a little bit distant 
and and a bit abstract. I think that's one of the other things about climate change, um, although it's less abstract now that extreme weather conditions are increasingly frequent on these islands. Um, I think it, it has felt a bit too big and a bit too far away. Uh, but to know how many of our insects or different species we've lost in you know since 1970 uh it, it's absolutely shocking um and people love nature so finding that common ground you know um is is again another way uh into getting people to understand that they can they, they have more power perhaps than they're, they're led to believe and i think with that you're, you're talking about the people's plan for nature that you're running um also with the rspb and the national trust um, a phenomenal campaign that that launched also um, as the government were making some fairly shocking moves to end a number of um, EU laws and lifting the moratorium on fracking and bringing in all of those new investment zones. And I think what, what we saw, and I think both Rupert and I were cheering from the sidelines, was, you know, you coming together, you know, in, you know not just one organisation, but a number of organisations coming together to unite with their institutional power and the ability to mobilise your collective membership. And that felt like a really new movement that felt really exciting um, from what arguably were quite moderate and conservative organisations that a red line had clearly been crossed and, and you were prepared to step up on that on behalf of your membership, which felt very powerful. And then additionally, I think what you're delivering, it'd be great to hear a bit, bit more about it, is an engagement strategy, which is where you're actually meeting people, talking to them, help taking them on that learning journey, and then inviting them into a conversation, as opposed to just expecting them to learn via their headlines, which isn't enough really in terms of building that agency. Could you tell us a bit more about what, what you're doing with the People's Plan for Nature? Yeah, sure. And you're absolutely right. It, it's um, it's great that we're working with the RSPB and the National Trust uh, together. And as you said, when we speak out together, we can do so uh, forcefully, as as we did just 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 recently. But what we'd already been planning was not just using our voices, but providing a platform for the public's voice, which I think is a, is a more interesting and, and bolder um, approach. Not just our voice, but uh, convening um, a, a UK nature assembly and publishing the people's plan for nature which will um, through um, a, a very open transparent and democratic uh, consultative process um, get a, a very broad input from the UK public um, so we've just completed the digital input phase online we're now convening the assembly which will happen over four weekends with a representative sample of a hundred people from across the UK. So all of that broad, uh, rich debate uh, that, you, that people may have seen on the people versus climate, because there, were climate, there was a climate assembly last year, um, building on that learning uh, to do the same thing around uh, nature. And then we're going to publish this, this plan uh, with what the what the people require from uh, different groups, whether that's local or national government, uh, the private sector, businesses, um, or NGOs like like ours, um, or community groups. You know, there'll be s something in it for everyone, and there we're going to suspend. Uh, then, sorry, spend next year um, delivering that plan, encouraging and activating people providing them with money or resource uh, and expertise as they need in order to bring nature back into their lives wherever they live in the UK. So effectively, you're delivering on your part of Article 12 of the Paris Treaty um, through nature. So I suppose arguably we now need many institutions really to be following you, don't we? Uh, you know, in terms of children's charities and health charities, potentially 
you know, that, you know, giving the public a voice, giving them a platform, inviting them into a conversation, taking them on a learning journey, and then presenting that back to government so that there isn't just this sense that the public don't care, which is a which is a message I've heard a lot over the last 10 days, which I think is simply not true and finding a way to give them that voice. Rupa. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned children's charities, Frankie, because I think there's something exciting which could happen and should happen there, which hasn't really happened yet, which is for those charities to recognize that the climate climate more than emergency is a threat to children and, if you will, a safeguarding issue, that there is no future for our children on a planet that carries on heating and heating and where and where the almost moribund, in my view, COP process ineffectually kind of acts as a talking shop and little more each year while the temperature keeps on going remorselessly um, up. Um, and I hope that and I believe that children's charities will start to step up over the next uh, year or two in the wonderful way that we've seen the uh, existing moderate flank of WWF and the Wildlife Trusts and the RSPB and so on really start to step up in a big way. So the outfit that, uh, that I run these days since moving on from Extinction Rebellion, uh, it's called the Moderate Flank Incubator. We're trying to create a new moderate flank, which is really thoroughly kind of truth-based in the way I was describing earlier in concert with mutual support, with invitation to action, with sense-making. Uh, and we're enormously encouraged to see the way that the organizations such as JAX uh, are moving into a space where, frankly, they've never been uh, before. Uh, and we think that there is, therefore, a real opportunity here of a, of a kind of historic confluence of, of what we're trying to bring, of what they, with their huge uh, scale and, and membership base, are clearly bringing uh, alongside what's been new since the advent of Extinction Rebellion and the school climate strikes in the in the radical flank that started four years ago now. I'd like to come in at this point then, really, and get your views on what you think about direct action um, activism. Obviously, Extinction Rebellion and more recently Just Stop Oil um, and um, others of, of that ilk. Do you think this kind of action is working or do you think there's any any validity to the argument that it can be counterproductive? Well, so the reason I moved on from XR was because it seemed to me, it came, became clear to me that there were many, many people who were never going to be willing to sign up to the radical flank and that and that we'd made some PR missteps. For example, the, the uh, tube action around uh, Canning Town, which had kind of uh, fatefully damaged the brand. Uh, and that what really was needed now was something which was a successor to uh, the the radical flank that had emerged into prominence, i.e. that the best way, the best compliment to pay really to the radical flank is to co-create a huge new movement of people uh, who are determined to make the changes that, that need to be made through the political system, sure, but also through workplaces, through our local communities, through religious organizations, perhaps. All the places in our lives where we actually spend the, the most time and, and have power, which often isn't used as fully uh, as it should be used. And crucially, one of the things that, that we in the new moderate flank are trying to bring is a sense that in order to do this kind of thing, you, there's no necessity actually for you to think of yourself as an activist at all. 
that the very identity of activists could itself be a barrier to entry into action for many people, which I think is, well, very clearly true. And Jack, your views on, on how the activism strategy has worked? I, there's, there's no doubt it's not popular with everyone and, and, and our Heartland uh, supporter audiences is very much in that moderate um, space, I think, think that, that Rip is describing there. So, you know, it, it's not for everyone. I think um, pe- people who really kind of care about nature and, and, and the climate will see why people have, have taken those extreme measures. Um, and lots of people who take issue, really powerful issue with it would never have liked it anyway in some in some in some way, I, I think, but, but I think looking to the future, I think much more exciting to think about the kind of activism and, and you're absolutely right. Some people wouldn't, would step away from self-identifying as activist, but taking action and being yeah. an active member in their communities yeah. is whether or not that's rewilding your, your children's school playgrounds or working with other people on your allotment to do, uh, na- you know, to make that nature or, you know, uh, writing to the council asking for wild spaces in your parks or reclaiming urban areas, doing all of those kinds of active things. I think it's a much more interesting and constructive form of activism. It's not to say that shining a spotlight by disruptive behaviour doesn't have its place. Yeah, and, and also, you're, you know, the, the um, CEOs, I think, of the National Trust and WWF were talking about actually mobilising the membership base if it, if it got bad, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it, at some point it's necessary, right? Absolutely. But it's the trust, I think, that coming from those trusted brands where you have a more moderate audience and you've invited them into a conversation, I think, definitely, I think, helps to bridge that gap um, and, and really kind of mobilise, um, well, I think, really create that public mandate for action that the government need to see. They do. And we should always defend our right to protest, you know, yeah. and, and, and some of the recent legislation is extremely concerning. And so, you know, we will be supporting the Walk for Wildlife and the, there's a day of action uh, on Saturday uh, in the middle of COP. You know, and and that is another form of activism. But but uh, as I said, you know, I think p- people need to be um, given uh, ways to be active and constructive, um, and yeah. kind of t- take take the power for themselves. And what's crucial is that everyone hears the call and that everyone steps up. Uh, if you don't like what Just Up Oil are doing, then do something that you consider to be more effective. But you've got to actually do it because that's going to be all that our children and their children ultimately care about is whether we actually stood up and were counted at the time when we had an opportunity. Well, Rupert, that is a great way to end today's discussion in what I think is a big call to the PR industry to not sit on the sidelines and to reimagine their role in the climate crisis, not just as media relations communicators, but as public engagement change makers. Huge thanks to you both, Rupert and Jack, for joining us. Thank you. You're so welcome. So now let me hand over to John for this week's Top and Flop. Thank you, Frankie. I'm going to start with Flop. Um, and it's everyone's favourite billionaire this week, Elon Musk. Um, it's difficult to know where to start, really. Probably easier to ask what went right with his takeover of Twitter. Um, as we know, the Tesla boss has always been a Marmite character, but it's hard to see how his actions since he bought the social platform on 28th of October have been anything but a reputation disaster. Um, perhaps the most damaging has been the constant reports of people being let go with almost no notice. Um, then on some occasions, bizarrely being asked to return 
again, with short notice, Musk says around half the workforce would need to go. Uh, maybe that's true, but I can't believe the situation couldn't have been handled better from a comms perspective. Um, there are other controversies here, the controversy over the move to require people to pay for blue ticks. Uh, some say this will lead to a flood of fake accounts that might appear legitimate. Um, and of course, there have been reports of major firms um, pausing their advertising on Twitter um, amid concerns like some Mondelez, uh, Audi, General Motors, Gen General Mills, um, named among them. I saw someone compare Musk's start to the helm at Twitter with Liz Truss's start to her time as Prime Minister. Um, what do you make of of this, uh, Frankie? How do you think Musk has handled his his takeover of Twitter? I'm a bit disappointed, John, because I've been watching the uh, Elon Musk documentary on BBC. I don't know, don't know if you've watched it, and it's been fascinating to try and understand. You know, uh, you know, this man is arguably a genius, and what he's achieved has been extraordinary. But he is a very unusual character. And, you know, you, you can see through his journey with Tesla that he pushed his people incredibly hard. I mean, he expected people to be there at 10 o'clock at night. You know, there's a story on there of, you know, when they were really trying to drive sales hard and people were living on four hours sleep. And, you know, this was just acceptable because that is how he probably lives his life. So, um I, I definitely felt though more, you know, um, I understood a little bit more about him. So for him to sort of come in, in a, in a time when trust in organizations is critical, um, it's, it's been a, it's been a real shock, I guess, that he's treated his people that way. I mean, I think I, you know, I heard stories of screens literally going blank while people are on conference calls and so forth. So I don't think it's acceptable for people to be treated that way. And I think we also had Elon Musk also with ESG issues and everything else. So maybe we shouldn't be that surprised. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting, isn't it? You know, it's a failure of internal comms as well as external comms, isn't it? You know, the elements of how the how the staff um, were treated uh, and the fact that they were so, it goes without saying, <laughs> Twitter staff are vocal on social media, right? Who would have thought it? Um, it really feels like, one of those examples of the importance of good internal comms and how it can go badly if you don't um, take that into account, as well as all the external comms issues they've been having, but certainly not a good week or so for the reputation of Mr. Musk. And I'm going to guess, John, that those internal comms people haven't got ultimate control over those decisions. I'm guessing they probably don't. So what's the top? Here we go. Frankie, I'd like you to picture the scene. It's Christmas Day. Lunch was a couple of hours ago. You're feeling peckish. You stick your hand into a box of celebrations, hoping the chocolate gods are smiling on you. You pick out a bounty. How are you feeling? I love a bounty. Very happy to have a bounty. But you're going to tell me there might not be there a bounty. There might not be a bounty. I know. This is astonishing. But um, our top, you may have heard of this campaign. Um, it's the new Banish the Bounty campaign for celebrations from Taylor Herring, um, which saw some, not that many, some shops stop selling bounties in their boxes or other sell boxes with uh, no bounties in as part of a trial. But frankly, it starts as part of a PR stunt and we can all appreciate that. The campaign, um, I'm sure you would have seen, uh, led to a barrage of media coverage, everyone from Piers Morgan to Lorraine Kelly discussing the merits or otherwise of the coconutty, chocolatey bar, which became a big debating point. For me, it's a fantastic example of how the earned media element can propel a Christmas campaign to new heights um, with that all-important talkability. 
And I think in a time where there's so much bad news, you know, uh, media titles are desperate for something lighter. And here it was. Um, instantly, the second part of the campaign, um, a film that shows the poor, lonely Mr. Bounty leave his tub uh, to find a friend, um, launches the day this podcast should be going live on Wednesday. Um, that's a follow-up to last year's Lonely Bounty campaign, which won at the PR8 UK Awards last month. Um, were you impressed by this campaign, Frankie? And do you have any other Christmas campaigns that have caught your eye this year? Well, I think this was this is the salad cream campaign reborn, right? So um, many years ago, uh, it was threatened that salad cream was coming off the shelves because the public didn't love it enough. And there was absolute outrage. And believe it or not, listings went through the roof and sales went through the roof. So I think um, Taylor Herring have given it a good, what, 15 years break since doing something similar. So we've definitely seen that this is a tried and tested PR tactic that's clearly worked very well. Um, they've obviously positioned it as a trial to create that conversation. Um, and and it's, done, it's been incredibly successful, its ability to kind of travel, travel across the social airwaves, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. So um, well done to Taylor Herring and to uh, Mars Wrigley. So, yeah, I think that's it. There's your top and flop. So that brings us to the end of this week's show. Thank you so much for listening and we'll look forward to you joining us next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 